Do the trashy pulp novels of the world have anything to offer? Our bestseller is all they're cracked up to be. Here at Terrible Book Club, we explore whether you really can judge a book by its cover or its ridiculous synopsis. You ever passed a book and thought, ugh, who's reading this? We probably are. Welcome to episode 162 of the Terrible Book Club. I'm Chris, and this is Paris. Hello. I got that wrong the first time we recorded that. <laughs> yeah, he thought he was me. I mean, I guess that's that's like flattering, right? Anyway, this time we read Things in Jars by Jess Kidd. <laughs> I just saw the typo. Things in Jarred is what the is what the notes say, but it's Things in Jars with an S by Jess Kidd, published in 2020 by Astria Books, an imprint of Simon and Schuster. This was requested by our patron, Donnie, who wrote to us saying, My wife and I read, or rather tried to read, a book called Things in Jars by Jess Kidd with our neighborhood book club. Oh, that's nice. Not a single person in the book club was able to make it through the thing. We all gave up on it and spent the meeting talking about the other books we'd read while avoiding this one. The writing was competent enough, but something about it made it nigh impossible to maintain focus. We all agreed it kind of feels like an old forgotten draft that a seasoned writer might have pulled out of a drawer and handed to their publisher without revision. If you ever get around to it, I'd be happy to hear your thoughts. We've got them. We've got them, Donnie. You're in luck. And, uh, you know, so Donnie mentioned reading this with his wife for their neighborhood book club. And I am pretty sure I found I found some evidence to back that up because there is a lonely post on Reddit. And somebody saying, hey, I had to read this for my neighborhood book club. What the fuck happened? And there's like eight <laughs> other people going, yeah, I don't know. And okay. Like, <laughs> I feel very validated <laughs> yeah. right now. Also, yeah. the sleuthing level here. You're always willing to just like find some weird, obscure Reddit post or some I mean, bit of information. Hey, man, I'm a child of the 90s internet. <laughs> like, Me too. I'm just not willing to look that hard. Okay, I'm a child of the 90s internet with a little more drive. I don't know. Fair, yes. <laughs> it's, it's the red hair you see. That is what it is. Yes, indeed. All um, right. Well, why don't you tell the good folks here what we are doing here? What's the point of this? All right. So if this is your first time listening to this show, what we do here at the Terrible Book Club is we read books that we assume will be bad based on their cover, title, summary, or some combination of the three. Um, sometimes, though, like today, we read books that our patrons, listeners, or friends have recommended. So we do the opposite of what most people do when they're in a bookstore or while they're browsing the internet. Usually, this experiment results in a disappointing and hilarious read, but once in a while, we do actually end up liking the book. Uh, in terms of like content for today, we've got our usual barnyard language, and today's episode includes discussion or mention of child abduction, decapitation, jarred specimens, surgery, you know, all that creepy Victorian experimentation stuff, and our non-graphic but ever-present ghoul sexual assault it's me sexual assault i'm still here <laughs> unfortunately can't seem to shake you sexual assault goblin um so yeah i'll be over here all the time <laughs> so yeah today's 
Today's got a lot of uh, things that people might find particularly icky. Uh, oh, I think there's also a dead animal. Yes. While we're on the topic of icky things, mm-hmm. audio content warning. Paris and I are in the same room today. Who knows what reverby <laughs> yeah, who knows what befoulments <laughs> would be on here when I have to deal with two separate... Listen, if you've been listening to recent Terrible Book Club episodes, if you're an audio nerd like me, you might pick up some artifacting on my voice because my room is really reverby right now. I still got to put up a lot of cloth in here. Now we're both in the room. Who knows what kind of phase issues and fun cancellations will happen when I try to apply the de-reverbing thing to this. So, you know, we'll see. maybe this will be a naturally reverbed episode because I'll get sick of it. So we're going to have the sexual assault goblin and then also the reverb gremlin yeah. and just all the little creatures that, that destroy our episodes. I'm the reverb gremlin. In a cave. Anyway, thank you for being here with us today. And thank you, Donnie, for this recommendation. I thought this was a great recommendation because we actually had a lot to talk about. Uh, So, yeah, appreciate it. Unusual as well. Really appreciate the recommendation. And thank you for being patron, Donnie. All right. So before we get into the summary that we will provide of all the major plot points, we want to tell you, like, how this book was marketed. What... What was supposed to draw people into this book? So, Chris, why don't you go ahead and read the back of the book summary for the folks at home? All right. Brittany Devine, flame-haired, pipe-smoking detective extraordinaire, is confronted with the most baffling puzzle yet, the kidnapping of Christabel Berwick, secret daughter of Sir Edmund Athelstan Berwick. <laughs> Athelstan. Athelstan Berwick. And a peculiar child whose reputed supernatural powers have captured the unwanted attention of collectors in this age of discovery. Winding her way through the sooty streets of Victorian London, Brittany won't rest until she finds the young girl, even if it means unearthing secrets about her past that she'd rather keep buried. Luckily, her search is aided by an enchanting cast of characters, including a seven-foot-tall housemaid, a melancholic tattoo-covered ghost, and an avuncular apothecary. But secrets abound in this foggy underworld where nothing is quite what it seems. Blending darkness and light, things in jars is a stunning, richly woven tapestry of fantasy, folklore, and history that explores what it means to be a human in inhumane times. Mm. You know, some publicists wrote that and they were like, oh, this is so good. That's, that's, you know what? That's pretty good. I will, I will back yeah, that, this fake publicist that you've made up in your brain. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, you know, it's, it's a good lure to yeah, get people to pick sure. this up. All right, why don't you go through our exhausting character list? <laughs> All right, so there was a lot of similar names in here. I was very confused as to what characters were who for a certain period of time here, so this is actually very helpful. Of course, we have Britty Divine, forensic doctor, PI, private, I think so. Yeah, she's like a forensic PI. Yeah, I don't like. Unclear. Sure. But through context. Some, yeah, <laughs> someone hired her to look stuff up, and she seems real doctory. Cora Butter, her housemaid, Valentine Rose, inspector over at Scotland Yard or whatever. And cartoonishly named love interest. Yes. <laughs> Ruby the ghost boxer, the other love interest. Sir Edmund Athelstan Berwick, baronet. I got that one right that time. Yeah, there you go. Kristen Berwick, a.k.a. Chevelle Kelly, his daughter, a.k.a. captive specimen. I think you meant Christabel, not Krista. Did I not say Christabel? I thought no, I said Christabel. you Christa. said Krista. You, oh. st- you forgot that last... You know what? Okay. I would forgive you that last, <laughs> last syllable there. It's okay. I'm just, sorry. Just clarifying. Christabel. Yes. Excuse me. 
Dr. John Eames, who was a second dad to Britty at certain points. She had a lot of dads, turns out. She had three dads. We're going to talk about We talked about dad number two first because it's like that pig thing where you let out, you number them one, three, and four, and everyone's looking for two for a while, but there's no two. Where are we numbering pigs, Chris? You've never heard of this? You've never heard this prank? Okay, you get three pigs, right? Yes. And you let them loose somewhere that you want to cause chaos, and you paint on them one, three, and four. Oh, so the point is to cut. Yes. Okay. That makes sense. Sorry. I thought you were just talking about like a farmer and I'm like, who's looking at these pigs? All right. No. Anyway. Chaos pigs. Yeah. Dad number Returning two. Returning to our regularly scheduled program okay. here. So Dr. John Eames was a second dad to Britty. Not her real dad. None of her dads here are the real dads. As right. Well. She was an orphan. She went through a series of like wardships. You yes. Know, so. And Dr. John Eames was dad number two. Dr. John Eames had a son, Gideon Eames, who is shitty. Which we'll find out why later. You have um, Dr. Eames, the senior, his bastard child, Edgar slash Kemp. You have Mrs. Bibby slash Bad Dorcas, who is sort of the villainess here in some ways. One of them. You have Della Webb, who was a... uh, Paris, when we were having a discussion about this... Dorcas's girlfriend. Yeah, I didn't really pick that up, but I'm oblivious, so... I'm going to go with what she said. Uh, you have Gan Murphy, first dad to orphaned Britty. He is a body snatcher. Resurrectionist is yeah. what I thought there was some necromancy happening for no. most of this book. And I was like, ooh, is it good? It's, well, it's not unreasonable. There's supernatural elements here. No, sure. Okay. Then you have Prudho, right? I said Prudho. I said Prudho as well. Yeah, yeah. Not Prudho as it's spelled. <laughs> Who is orphan dad number three? He's a toxicologist slash pharmacist of sorts. That was the best approximation. You know, whatever counted for that in Victorian London when they didn't really have a licensing board for that kind of thing. It yeah. feels like uh, you have Doctor William Harbin, who is the Baronet's doctor. Yes, John Eames is. No, uh, you're right. I'm sorry. Yes, he is Berwick's doctor. Yes. Sorry about that. That was my. It was a notes correction there. And then we have Myrtle Harbin, who is Dr. Harbin's daughter, who is really more of a plot device than a character. Yeah. And if you're at this point being like, I can't keep any of this straight. I, why <laughs> do I care about this? Yeah. It, yeah. Welcome. Join our club. You're Speaking here. of, why don't we try to summarize what happened here for the good folks on Reddit over there? Yeah. Uh, so this is this is the best I could do. I left out a lot of. Small details, I left out a lot of lesser characters, because if I didn't, this summary would have been exhaustive and painful as much of this book was. Paris, you got to go back to that Reddit post and post a link to this episode. I will. Up. I'll be like, <laughs> folks. I found out. You can thank Donnie if he is in this neighborhood. Unless, what if all neighborhood book clubs were cursed with this book at the same time because it was like in Oprah's book club or some shit? Maybe. Ugh, anyway. All right, here we go. For, the, for everyone at home who didn't read this... This is the summary as we experienced it. This is our truth in Things in Jars by Just Kid. Uh, and we do this so that while we are praising the book, complaining about the book, we, you know, you kind of get the basic plot points and you sort of know what happened. Bridie Divine is our resident Sherlady Holmes, and she's Irish, so she's going to have red hair and be hot, right? As an orphan who was raised by first a corpse robber, then a doctor, and finally a toxicologist, Bridie has the perfect background to solve crimes as a private investigator. 
sometimes she works with her friend Valentine Rose, who is employed by Scotland Yard, but largely she works alone. She lives with her maid, confidant, and bodyguard, the seven-foot-tall Cora Butter, with a baritone voice who takes absolutely zero shit from anyone. No one bothers her about being single and independent as a 30-something because Bridie pretends to be a widow, despite never being married. In her last case, she failed to find a kidnapped boy fast enough, which ended in his murder. So, when wealthy baronet Sir Berwick asks her to find his missing young daughter Christabel, she can't refuse the call. Of course, the case isn't what it initially seems. Christabel exhibits unusual traits and is rumored to be a marrow, fabled evil mermaid of Irish lore. Bridie doesn't believe the child is actually supernatural, but does suspect something devious is going on. After a lot of disguises, investigating, legwork, and, you know, people just spontaneously confessing to her, Bridie discovers that there are indeed nefarious deeds afoot. The baronet's doctor, Dr. Harbin, conspired to steal the child along with a hired con woman posing as a maid, Mrs. Bibby, Dorcas, so they could sell her to a carnival or researcher for lots of money. It's honestly a pretty dumb fucking plan, especially since the child is actually a marrow and is so dangerous that she is handled with chainmail and is kept in a straitjacket most of the time. Also, rare creatures and unique specimen were extremely popular at the time, so I'm not sure how Harbin and Dorcas thought they would get away with it and also make enough money for this whole charade to be worth it. Motivations for these villains are really questionable. Anyway, anyway, the bad guys send a dude to rob Bridie, but he decides he also wants to rape her. They have a brief brawl, and it's actually unclear what the extent of the assault was. Harbin gets double-crossed by his buyer for the Marrow Child, who decapitates him. Coincidentally, this buyer was actually... Bridie's childhood nemesis, Gideon Eames, who murdered her dog and a random sick elderly woman, Della Webb, because he has a fascination with vivisection and is just an all-out vile human being. Dr. Harbin's daughter, Myrtle, provides Bridie with essential clues, and Dorcas gives a deathbed confession for villain reasons, I guess. Finally, Bridie gets to the end boss, Gideon, once more, and confronts him and his henchman, Edgar Kemp, and rescues the Marrow, uh, whose actual name is Chevelle, and Myrtle, the daughter of Dr. Harbin, from their clutches. No one except the bad guys die, the Marrow gets to go free in a river instead of being in a circus or experimented upon, and Bridie solves the case. Oh yeah, and she had a ghost boyfriend for the duration of the case, but there's no reason to talk about it because it had no bearing on anything at all. The end. Things in jars! Fantastic! Things <laughs> in jars! Alright, Chris, uh, would you like to begin... There was quite a few things that were enjoyable and nice. So while this was edited for spelling and syntax, it, I mean, like, it's got a lot of making sure things spelled good. Sentence work right. Correct. It wasn't, it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't difficult to read a sentence and like sentence line by line, as you typically say, mm -hmm. it was sound. Yes. You know? Definitely not edited for content. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. Sure. We're still in the good parts. Um, so, yeah, generally put together competently in terms of making words that make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Good vocabulary. You know, we get, a you know, flourishing descriptions we'll talk about a little bit later. So, yeah, all that was good. Like Donnie said, competent. Competent writing. Okay. Then we had some shifting perspective, you know, different chapters focusing on different people. Sometimes we went back in time with Bridie. Mm -hmm. um, we got a lot of perspective of Christabel yeah. and Mrs. Bibby, kind of same time sort of thing. It wasn't I ever, so it was like, you know, omniscient, third person kind of narrative thing. And Christabel and Mrs. Bibby had their perspective. Bridie had her perspective. 
Um, did we get another one? Mm. Mostly Bridey, Bridey in the past. Yeah, Bridey in the present, and then Mrs. Bibby Dorcas. Yes. Mrs. Dorcas Bibby is how I'm going to refer to her. Yes. Um, she, uh, there's a neat thing she does where you not only get her perspective in the present, but also in the past because she is telling a kind of fairy tailed up version of her own life to Christabel as she's like kind of taking care of her slash kidnapping her, which is awkward, but you know, obviously they need to keep the kid alive and do their best. <laughs> so, um, even though the child is dangerous and can't really be let out, Mrs. Dorcas Bibby <clears throat> at least tries to entertain her with stories and the child does communicate through way of taps and stuff that she likes the stories. So, um, so I actually thought that device of Dorcas relaying her own life as a fairy tale to the child was a good convention. I enjoyed that. I thought <clears throat> it was layered enough that you did have to think about it a little bit. It wasn't too obviously served to you if you've listened to the show before you know that i can't stand books that just kind of hand things to you on a silver platter this book did not do that which i thought in some respects was good some in some respects maybe not but i did like this particular device um and if you pay attention to the fairy tales that dorcas tells you can then put together some things that are not figured out by bridie until the very end so yeah that was good Definitely slipped past me quite a bit because I, I honestly I started skimming the fairy tale things because mm -hmm. I was like, okay, clearly it's her talking about herself in the past and maybe it's not all that true. So it isn't really that important. So I caught some things, but I think some things went over my head like the Della Webb thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's okay. Another really good thing about this book is that this author, man, does she know how to set a scene, see you in that scene and make you forget it is a scene that was set. The world... Obviously, it was built for her as this is a historical fiction uh, based in, you know, 1860s London and I guess a little bit 1840s London. Uh, but she takes that history and revives the pieces into a vivid whole. There's a lot of attention to casual detail, which in some respects helps build the world up around a reader. I think later we're going to talk about how sometimes she gets a little lost in this. But I think for the most part, this is a um, a mark in the good, the good tally uh, for this book. I'm going to go ahead and read a couple of selections just so you can get the flavor. Um, uh, if it were, or maybe Chris and I will both <laughs> read them to get the flavor. Uh, so just so you can get understand what we're talking about here with the scene setting. Here's a bit early on in the book, around page four. But the servants slumber on. The housekeeper, tidy-bedded, need of nightcap and frill like a spoon put away for best, inspects the linen cupboards of her dreams, smiling at immaculate piles, heaven fresh as clean as clouds. The butler, proper, even in his night-shirted sleep, patrols an endless cellar. The bottles giggle in dark corners. They ease out their corks and call to him in honeyed voices. They sing songs of laden vines and sunny hillsides and duty-forgotten, liquid bewitchment grips his lantern and will not stop. The housemaids, in their attic nests, are dreaming of omnibuses and pantomimes. The cook snores fruity, unpeeled and well-soaked under warm sheets, as solid and brandy-scented as plum pudding. She dreams of matchless souffles. She humps them down as she sails in a saucepan over a gravy sea. All are senseless in their tucked-in, heavy breathing before dawn quiet. Boss pan over gravy sea is oh, some yeah, real pretty good. <laughs> ace stuff. 
really, really great. Um, I yeah, I found I found the descriptions right at the beginning were rather enchanting. It really made me want to keep reading. Um, and as we went on, even though as we'll talk about later, some of it got a little exhausting, I still thought that overall I felt like I knew where I was. I could really really feel the settings with all my senses, right? Um, and in this next section, I think that that really uh, exemplifies that. Let me. Uh, in this section, the author is describing London through Bridie's senses. <laughs> but for now, the slums are as they have always been, as warm and lively as a blanket full of lice. Bridie could find her way with her eyes shut and her nostrils open. Try it now. Close your eyes. Eyes that would be confused anyway by the labyrinthine alleys, twisting passages, knocked up and tumbling down houses. Breathe in, but not too deeply. Follow the fulsome fumes from the tanners and the reek from the brewery, butterscotch rotten, drifting across seven dials. Keep on past the mothballs of the cheap tailors and turn left at the singed silk of the maddened hatter. Just beyond, you'll detect the unwashed crotch of the overworked prostitute and the Christian sweat of the charwoman. On every inhale, a shifting scale of onions and scalded milk, chrysanthemums and spiced apple, broiled meat and wet straw, and the sudden stench of the Thames as the wind changes direction and blows up the knotted back streets. Above all, you may notice the rich and sickening chorus of shit. The smell of shit is the primary olfactory emission from the multifarious inhabitants in Brady Divine's part of town. Everyone contributes. The Russians, Polish, Germans, Scots, and especially the Irish. Everyone is at it, from Mrs. Neary's newborn crapping in rags to Father Dukin squatting genteely over his chamber pot. Their output is flung into cesspits, cellars, and yards where it contributes to London's perilous reek. That's a stinky passage. I mean, definitely makes me feel pretty good about, like, sewage systems and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, a chorus of shit is also a really mm, great line there. Yeah, so very descriptive. Uh, and Chris is going to lead us in our last example. The cook told her that while Mrs. Eames worshipped her son, she had been indifferent to her daughter. At best, she had viewed poor Lydia as a dress-up doll. At worst, an inconvenience, like February or indigestion. I just thought that was a really great description. I do of- find February a little inconvenient, actually. It's just just short enough to kind of fuck up your schedule. Know, like end of month stuff and like when bills roll in. Oh, yeah, I guess that's true. In general, I like February, though, because we get a lot of snow. I love snow. Not this time. Yeah, not this time. You know, with the with the planet evaporating yes. and dying, convulsing. Uh, anyway, um, put that away in your brain. Yeah, just ignore that. Uh, anyhow, I just wanted to read some examples for the general good descriptions in this book, rich and full of the five senses. You know, you're really, really feeling what's going on here. The next thing I really enjoyed about this is the myth that was at the heart of this story. I think it was a good one and it was well told within the narrative. I personally enjoy the marrow. And it doesn't feel overused in media yet, right? Like, we're not reading about a vampire. We're not reading about a regular mermaid. We're not reading about a zombie. The marrow is a is a great flavor of mermaid. Some would say it is actually the real mermaid. That is generally how they're considered. Real Lord. mermaids of Scotland country. <laughs> I, or London dairy. I don't... Only real mermaids here. Get no, I'm talking your... like real housewives, but yeah. it's just a bunch of, like, women with huge pikey teeth. And... Yeah. The real marrow. Of, of Dublin or whatever. <laughs> um, anyhow, 
yeah, I just I thought it was a nice, nice um, departure from what we normally see when we read uh, this sort of like historical fiction with a supernatural flavor. This is a very popular genre. We have faced it many times. I usually think the monster is sexy. Usually the monster is sexy. <laughs> Which like, And usually someone's fucking it or wants it, to fuck it. Yeah. Thankfully, that does not happen at all. Does not appear. Um, I think we also usually see the monster as um, not as dangerous as people think it is. But in here, it's like very clearly a problem. The child, like, Christabel Chevelle is fucking dangerous. Like, she's got to be handled with chainmail gloves and has to be kept in a straitjacket because she will eat your cat and she will bite you to death. She will also <laughs> drown you. She will conjure water and drown you. Yeah, I don't really know how the chainmail and straitjacket helps with that, I'm, particularly. <laughs> everyone that... knows water can't get through links and chains. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, uh, that was an odd bit, but in any case. A lot going on there, but my point is that I thought that this illustration of this particular mythical creature and the choice of creature was a great one. I really enjoyed that. I was immediately interested. I wanted to read more. Um, it was just done. That part was really done masterfully, I would say. Uh, I thought. I also thought, so the reason I feel the inclusion of this particular myth mythical character and like the whole Marrow thing was masterful was because also the time and place for this particular mystery around a mythical creature was Mwah, chef's kiss because if you know anything about that period in you know in time and place victorian england to you know 1860s 1900 etc that general period very into discoveries and and like special specimen and um, rare creatures, you know, we, we've all heard about, I'm sure, like, the Fiji mermaid, which is fake, but, and, I don't know, I'm trying to think of what else, like, um... Yeah, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle even went out there looking for fairies, right? Like, Yeah, it's... right, don't, like, fairies, you could, you know, people were really interested in science kind of overtaking myth and superstition and either proving those things to be true and some kind of, you know, new path for, at least in the Marrow's case, like, ooh, a new type of human or a human hybrid or like, or using science to outright disprove stuff. So people were just like all about this. And at the same time, you had, you know, carnivals and circuses in addition to the scientific community. I mean, sometimes they're kind of one and the same, um, you know. Hello, uh, well, I'm Dr. Clown. Yeah. Researcher. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Like featuring things. I mean, there's, um, I don't. I don't want to spend too much time on this. I, I also I feel bad glossing over it, but we don't really have the time to do a deep dive. But of course, there is quite a sordid history here. You have a lot of I mean, this story illustrates like kidnapping and selling of people and quote unquote creatures. But I mean, this is unfortunately a period of time where a lot of people with unique and uncommon characteristics were kind of sold and into basically slavery and treated like shit and experimented upon in some cases. Really bad stuff. Um, so I just, I just really feel like this particular mystery was perfect for this setting. Like the author did her work there with the history, found the right period of time, found the right kind of mystery, the right creature. I just really want to applaud this in the book because this is the thing that I, that kept me, these are the things that kept me interested, I should say. Uh, and yeah, it was, it was great. Um, the other aspect of this that I thought was, uh, a really, you know, kind of part of the mastery here was the myth of the marrow and Bridie kind of being a parallel, right? Because Bridie is an Irish orphan. She has been passed around 
uh, through different families as a ward. She kind of just her life sort of gets dictated to her by the men who are allowed to make decisions about her life. You know, nothing. Very few things she does are fully her choice until she's much older. And similarly, the marrow, the child in the story and both the myth at large, marrows are a tale told of uh, men wanting to control women at, at its heart, uh, which is another reason why that myth kind of speaks to me. You know, I I don't know. I just enjoy it. Uh, it's been <laughs> relevant to my life, I guess, uh, or many people's lives. You know, you have this beautiful creature who is seen as sort of dangerous and chaotic and does things that, you know, men just don't understand. And in order to control them, they have to, like, take something from them and tame them and they can never be allowed to have their own free will or they'll kill everyone and just do whatever the fuck I don't they get want. It. Why does she keep trying to run away from me? I just put her in a box at all times. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And so it's it's this wonderful um, parallel and I don't think it's too heavy-handed. The only part of it that was like maybe a little a little too much was that Right, you know, Bridie's also Irish. The marrow is is something from Irish folklore, so it's it's like a little much. But in general, I thought the parallel was nice. I didn't think it was overdone. So yeah, this part, like I said, I could I could talk about how much of a win this whole part to this book was. Really enjoyed it. Sorry, Chris. Thanks for giving me the airtime to wax poetic about the marrow. <laughs> Dude, what happened to you? Well, my fucking marrow got out and bit my arm off. <laughs> Why did it do that? I don't know. I fed it twice a day. That's all you need to do, right? Yeah, that's what you do with wives, right? Keep it in a box, feed them twice a day. <laughs> I liked Cora. You know, it's yeah. very hard to do the sort of sarcastic, whippish character in the background, always like with a cutting remark. It's very easy to be cringe about that. Oh, absolutely. And it's also very easy to be cringe about having a character in a work who is kind of gender nonconforming. Um, a woman, but doesn't have, you know, sort of your characteristically cishet uh, characteristics. Cora is a woman who is seven feet tall. She's kind of hulking. She has facial hair. She's a baritone vo voice, but she's a woman, damn it. And, you know, and that's totally accepted in the story. No one questions it. Like, it's a really she's great presentation. <laughs> she's, you know, she's visually remarkable because of her height, for right, sure. Correct. And people are like, that's a tall person. But beyond that, that's, that's about it. And I mean... Again, because it's very easy to do this character wrong. Yes. and ha So it's commendable to the author that her witticisms or sarcastic snide remarks are just enough there to make her seem a little bit enjoyable. I feel like Cora's voice is always being like the one in the background, like Bridie will say something and you'll hear kind of someone go, like, <laughs> right? Like that's the voice that she right. would probably be doing like under her breath, some kind of remark. But not in like a tut tutty. No. You know, it's like like you said, it really strikes the the correct uh, the correct tone and the treatment of Cora is not an oddity to be like the book doesn't doesn't have this like garish lingering on Cora like like a yeah. character like this would have in a lot of other mainstream books by big publishers. So, yeah, I got to say it. Uh, good. Good job. I mean, again, I mean, we are to like cishet people. But for us, we thought we thought this was a good inclusion. I just want to call I it out. I enjoyed every scene Cora was in. Yeah. Agreed. And she also, like, she has a respectable job. She's just, like, a maid. She's maid and, like, best friend of Bridie. She's not, you know, a lot of the time, anyone who's non-gender conforming is automatically slotted into, like, sex work or um, 
being like a spectacle and that's not the case here she's just a woman leading, leading her life leading her life leading her life is what i was trying to say a woman leading her life <laughs> sorry about that um she's also gay and not closeted which was interesting i mean she's not you know she's not out there making a, a spectacle of herself but she does go on a date with a woman in this snake story lady. the snake lady yeah there's a snake lady um she's like i like that snake what's up with that snake and she just they just hang out on the side in the story, it's not even for yeah. a book that does go a little bit too much into detail about things. Cora actually is like, "I'll thank you not to ask me about it." Actually, yeah, <laughs> I really, I really thought that Cora's inclusion was great. She was there for the right amount of time at the right points. The uh, depiction of her was not tone deaf for once, and I, yeah, just really liked it. I mean. You know, it is. It was a bummer that she and the girl she was dating didn't end up, you know, together ha- happily ever after. But neither of them fucking died. The gay ladies didn't get fucking murdered. They weren't tokenized. Thank you. They were just there as like a little side as characters. Thing. It's regular mostly characters. a little bit of humor because Cora was like, "I like that snake lady at the circus. I'm just not going to be here for this one scene because I'm on a date with my snake lady." Yeah, and okay, all right. And you might be wondering. Why the fuck is this such a marvel? Like, why do you care? It, I, and I would like to please, please see, um, please see exhibit A. Any mass media featuring gay or gender nonconforming women. Uh, guess what? They almost all always get like tortured or die. Something horrible happens. So the fact that that didn't happen in this book is unfortunately <laughs> notable. And I would just like to say thank you to the author. Thank you. Hey, you did it. Now here's the part where we talk about the stuff we didn't like. So really. <laughs> yes. Sorry. <laughs> okay, just going to pat you on the back and now a slap in the face. I know. I really wish that we didn't have to structure this as like, it's not quite a shit sandwich, right? Because we don't do good, bad, good. But it's like, it's like a shit piece of toast. <laughs> it's like, it's like. Harris, I've been saying for a long time that we don't have to structure it good and bad. We could just have a freeform discussion. <laughs> yeah, but then it's unclear. I think the people listening. So anyhow, thus concludes all of the major things we enjoyed about the book. We are now going to move into the things we didn't like so much. Things that were not so hey, great. Top of the list, right? Screaming oh. huge letters <laughs> as large as possible. Why Ruby the ghost boxer with a top hat and underwear only on and covered in tattoos. He's pantsless and shirtless the whole time with just a top hat and a mustache and a bunch of tattoos that move around his body. And he's a ghost. And Brady thinks he's Brady thinks he's hot, and he thinks she's hot, but they can't do anything about it. Also, it has zero bearing on the story whatsoever, except that he can like go into things and scout a little, or like go behind someone's shoulder to read something out loud to Brady. But none of that is actual. None of that has any bearing on the story. Like you said, there's absolutely he doesn't find out a key piece of information. Nope. And I, I struggled. I was like. What the fuck was the point of this? Did I fucking miss something? <laughs> like, I was in the neighborhood book club going, like, why was this here? <laughs> and it it really, I, and again, if you've listened to the show before, you know that Chris and I hate romance subplots for the most part because they are almost always done poorly. This is one of those. This was really just like, hey, we got to pad this out, even though you really didn't because it's 386 fucking pages. You didn't I, have to pad it out, see, because man. Because of like, the good writing, I thought some of the like romantic yeah. subtext was actually like well done for like if I was reading a romancy thing. But it's still there was no this is the most superfluous romance subplot yeah, I have ever seen. Ruby adds nothing. I don't get there, it. He early on. 
he goes, oh, if you knew who I was from your past, because he knew Bridie from somewhere previously, and she's like, I don't remember you, and he goes, well, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't want to talk to him anymore. Way end of the book, Ruby At was- At the very end. Ruby was some kid that when Gan Murphy, dad number one to Bridie, was taking her across the ocean, they were on a boat that was a little bit- you know, sloshed about quite a bit. Mm-hmm. The the ocean was vibrating it real good or whatever, because as we know from Karnaki, it, it got a little scary and like perhaps they, they didn't capsize, but they like kind of almost did. Yeah. Anyway, she and she she makes a friend on the boat, this other kid, and they fall into the water together and he saves her. And guess what? That's Ruby the boxer. Why? Would she not want to know him? Why? Because I'm fairly sure he saved her life. He did. And I think they were also like six years old. They were like really yes. little. So why would finding out, hey, you're that kid that saved my life when we got knocked overboard on a boat one time. Fuck off. I don't want to see your face ever again. Yeah, I think the assumption he was making was that he was a stowaway on the boat and was some kind of maligned class of people. So therefore, but I was like, so was she? She was an orphan. Yeah, she's an Irish orphan, like also a maligned group at the time in that place. So like, that made no sense to me. Why did we need to have this like, Bridie has weird amnesia about this thing. She has to remember it. She has to remember it to unlock this special part of her memory in person. And like, no, 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 didn't do (laughs) shit. So, uh, so the central mystery surrounding like who Ruby is and why he's there doesn't fucking matter even once it's determined. His present, he's only present during this case. She literally, he first appears to her in a churchyard that she goes to because she's investigating the entombed bodies of a woman and a marrow infant. This is right in the beginning of the book. And he is buried in that churchyard and appears to her and she's like, well, I don't believe in ghosts. I don't know, this is weird, but whatever, which I thought was funny. But then as it goes on, he keeps appearing to her and he's like living in her house. Well, living. He's like in her house with her and stuff. Deading in her house. Deading in her house. <laughs> yeah. It's just, just deading up in the house. <laughs> and they start developing, you know, like a crush on each other. And I'm like, this is so dumb. And then she buys Afterlife Love by Niles McClure. <laughs> she, <laughs> she, she buys the Victorian equivalent of Afterlife Love by Niles McClure. She buys a book that's like Spectral Love, how to how to be with your dead lover. And I'm like, son of a bitch, are we going to have to read this lady <laughs> fucking a ghost? And I was so pissed. Luckily, that never happens. I will credit the author. They're we never, we never for get each other. Spe- they're yeah, always like, I, if only we could touch. If only we could touch. But there's other ways to do sexy stuff. You can like look at each other while you do. You know, yeah. You can do. you not? Can you not jerk off if you're a ghost? I I don't. He says that he can't feel things. Yeah, I guess that's true. So maybe not. Just be creative, man. You can still get some sexual delight out of it. Yeah, what I'm you, sure. Come on, you don't need to go to the astral plane. Yeah. Don't. So we have these two uncreative people who are <laughs> in like, they're not in love because this case seems to happen over a short period. I guess I don't actually know. It's a few months, it's I a believe. a couple months, right. Yeah, because there good, are- like back and forth from London and- Yeah, there are month headings on the chapters, but it's a, it's a few months, right? In any case, at the very end- of the book once the she solves the case 
or right before she solves the case or whatever, she or no, it's I'm sorry. I'm excuse me. She solves the case. And as part of solving the case, she gets she plunges into a river and being plunged into the river, recalls the memory of Ruby. And then she goes home. And after a few days, he's like fading. And she's like, oh, no, it's because I remembered you. And he's like, yeah, it had to be this way. And then hang on a second. Okay, there is I'm going to read a passage to you that when I finished it, I said. I will burn Britain to the fucking ground because it was so stupid. I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to read it to you. Ruby stays by her side. They hardly talk, but this is not contentment. Ruby knows it. As he knows, it can't last. He yearns to lie down and close his eyes. He wonders if a dead man can be exhausted. He wonders if Bridie has noticed. She has, of course. She keeps the curtains drawn and the gaslights dim, for he is fading daily. Today she can barely see him as he stands by the window, peering out at the visitor below. The inspector, says Ruby, has roses. Bridie draws in her pipe. Good for him. Ruby listens. There's a sound of Cora hobbling down the stairs to answer the door. Will you be indisposed again? I will. Good man, Bridget. Bridie glances up at him. He holds his hat in his hand with the air of a man taking his leave. And all at once, Bridie's heart turns in her. What are you even saying? Bridie notices the tattoos on his body. They are no longer moving. The anchor has taken itself up, its rope coiled neatly. The skull's teeth meet in a rictus grin, and the mermaid gazes fixedly far into the horizon, shielding her eyes with her inked hand. The heart on Ruby's chest is complete now, still and whole. Bridie reads her name on it, etched in blue, where it has always been. Bridget! I think you should live a bit, Bridie. And she is crying, sobbing, with the heart floored in her, but not looking away. Not now, not ever. He holds her with his eyes for the longest time. For this is their parting. As sudden and slow, surprising and foreseen as any parting. Between together and apart, an eye blink and all of eternity. What do I have to do? She asks. But he is already. I'm going to burn Brynn in the fucking ground. (laughs) (laughs) The tattoo shining on his spectral chest with her name. So, So he got a tattoo of a child he met when he was six who he saved from drowning and that was the name he got. What the fuck? We were both unclear as to whether as to whether he had Bridget written on the tattoo for a while or whether it was etched across his heart in that moment. Yeah. Which I think is a nice microcosm of how confusing this book can be. (laughs) Yeah, that's actually true. Where some details that should be clear are not clear. Yeah. And okay, again, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I'm belaboring this, but like Ruby's inclusion really does not make sense. If it had been stripped from this book, it would have been so much more enjoyable because like a lot of the time he sort of functions as, you know, the Watson and the Watson to Holmes ratio that these books seem to need. But she is seems perfectly content, like mulling things over with Cora at home or talking to Valentine Rose, the detective that she has like this weird, like kind of friendship with. And he kind of likes her, but whatever. She also mulls things over to herself all the time. I There's no need. She's also solved plenty of other cases without a ghost sidekick. He doesn't even do the ghost thing of I went into the house to get the information so that I can tell you. Right. Which even I mean, that sucks and it's cheap. Yes, I agree. I would not have liked that either. 
But to be clear, if you're going to put the ghost in there, I feel like he's got to do a little something to help in the investigation. Yeah. He looked over a shoulder one time and he like he warns Bridie when people have guns. That's about it. Which I also feel like as a forensic private investigator who's been in a lot of dangerous situations and also a child who survived, you know, a lot being a body snatcher's apprentice, a surgeon's apprentice, dealing with, you know, Gideon murdering her dog as a child and like all this shit. She doesn't need it. Honestly, like I... <laughs> She's already written as like a strong, independent woman, and she is that. I don't so need no ghosts. I don't need no ghosts. <laughs> Get out of here. I'm a strong, independent, mortal, breathing woman. I don't need no ghosts. Get out of here with your ghosts. I agree. Seriously, get the fuck out of here with the ghost lovers. I don't yes. want it. There's no reason for it to be in here. Cut it. If you're thinking about including a ghost lover, do not <laughs> do it. I will find you. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, anyway. That I want to do that level of research. It sucked. Um, I also, sorry, I spent a lot of time on the ghost lover, but I would also just like to read how, like, bizarre there. There's we only really get one detailed glimpse into their attraction to each other, and somehow they're both fantasizing about the same thing independently, which is already weird. Because there's no, like, setup. There's no reason they should both be daydreaming about the same exact scenario with each other. But I suppose we're supposed to take that as though, oh, they're faded lovers. Therefore, they're having the same same dream. And this little daydream seems to be about, like, wouldn't it be great if we were engaged in domestic violence together? And I was like, what the fuck? I'm going to read this to you all because I found it confusing. It's going to be real fun figuring out the right music for this. <laughs> Whatever's coming up here, I searched for it for 10 minutes, I promise you guys. <laughs> Bridie steals a look at Ruby. He catches her and smiles back, his brown eyes full and kind and hot on hers. She feels the sudden keen pain of something like sadness. If he wasn't dead and she was inclined, she is inclined, she could just imagine a life beginning and ending with him. Ruby, drunk home, with his boots on in bed. Oh, the rose and the making up having a rabble of dark-eyed children to him, growing old in the familiarity of his touch, his thoughts, his breath, his fingertips smoothing a loose hair, his lips bent to her neck. And she's awash with sorrow, because she can't have a dead man. The sudden watery luster to her eyes, she blames on the freshening air. Ruby steals a look at Bridie. She catches him and smiles back, her eyes full of devilment, and who knows what thoughts, and oh, he could kiss her for that. She walks fast, her widow's cap and black bonnet slipping back, her cape discarded and bundled under the perambulator, so that Ruby sees the contours of her fine, strong body in motion, the open, easy grace of her, for all the world like a proud mother. Ah, oh, now, another smile glimpsed and caught, green eyes shining, and does she feel herself liquid, and would she pour herself into his arms and abandon reason and cleave to him? A life ending and beginning with her, her roaring, him drunk at home, in the bed with his boots on, brawling and loving, serenading. Their raucous children, green-eyed, please God, a babe on the knee before the hearth and his London illustrated self pinned on the wall, Bridie. Growing old together, the familiarity of her touch, her voice, his fingertips threading foxy autumn hair. Ruby wipes his eyes briskly on the back of his hand, a fault of the freshening air, and notes a rough bit of road coming up. Why are they both imagining them yelling at each other and being drunk with boots on in bed? What is that about? <laughs> that's, you know, that's the husband and wife stuff. 
Yeah, but that's not good husband and wife stuff. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? I, I, I don't know. Maybe because I... They're particularly weird in the same way for each other, which is, again, as you said, the point, like, with the boots and the bed line is supposed to make you think, yeah. oh, look, they both have the same silly image in their head. Also, I'm going to pick a nit right now. Did you notice that at the end of that I said, Ruby wipes his eyes briskly on the back of his hand, a fault of the freshening air. He has stated twice previously that he's a ghost and he can't feel anything, so <laughs> how would him crying be attributed to the air? That's his mental excuse, so that that's what he would give, tell Bridget? <sighs> I guess. I hate this. I hate all of this so he's much. Cr- he's crying about not getting to yell at his wife? He's like, oh, man, I can't be drunk with my boots on in bed screaming <laughs> at you while you're dealing with our screaming children. God damn it. I really missed out dying in a barroom brawl. Uh, and she's like, yeah, I really would have loved for you to be drunk and screaming at me. Oh, God. Let's cry about it together. What the fuck? Get better fantasies. I don't, yeah. <laughs> Whatever that you, I mean... I'm not going to kink shame, I suppose, your yeah, boots and bed fetish. <laughs> Hashtag boots and bed. We're going we're gonna, to we're call that on Twitter anyway. Uh, anyhow, uh, yeah, get ready to ghost lovers. All right. Sorry. I'm going to stop talking about this. Now. I just really hate Major, it so That much. was point one, bro. Okay. So let's move on here. All right. The next thing that we really had trouble with was... As, as rich as these descriptions are, and as much of a boon as it was to the work, man, the author sometimes just, just feels like she's getting a little lost. Just getting, getting all these weird tangents where she's like, and this man had seven moles on his face, and they were each the size of a state in the United States across the pond. Where they say, they had, like, it really just, you start, she just starts spinning a yarn, and you're like, uh, you're running out of yarn. She's like, nah, it's fine. And you're like, more of the yarn. And she pulls out a second ball of yarn that is connected to the first ball of yarn. And you're like, fuck. Oh, yeah, oh shit, I was going to sit here. <laughs> it really, yeah, there were, there's just so many times where the author should have put the brakes on a description or should have maybe not spent not spent really any time in some situations describing people because they don't matter. And I don't need a nothing. full paragraph about Jem the newspaper boy who delivers a message once across yep. the thing, like a yep. full paragraph, like trying to get, like, almost get into the deep lore, like you picked up his hat in Elden Ring. <laughs> it's like, Jem the newsboy from the lands beyond was once the ritual practitioner of newspaperology. Yeah, like... If you, the, when the you Academy don- of Boingo Gaglarga. Like. <laughs> when you don gems hat, you gain plus two to sweeping. <laughs> plus three if it's a chimney. <laughs> like, yeah, it's it's a little much. And okay, See, if you, you pick might- up the other hat later in the game, you find out that Jem, the newspaper boy, was actually apprenticed to Borgo, the wizard, who would cast newspaper magic. He's so crazy. I realized that all my made-up names were just the letter B and then O and then some other consonants, but I'm fine with that. It's all right. Anyway, I've got here a passage that will illustrate the point. I'll have you a passage, Master Chris. (laughs) Please. And this is it's its own section in the book. Actually, they have, you know, you put like a little hyphen in the middle of the page to like break off parts of a chapter. This is own completely separated thing here. A man calls in at the old ship chandlery shop. A stranger, large but agile, scarred face and hands, close-cropped hair, and a grown-out beard in the Crimean fashion. He has a quiet, hostile way about him. Bill knows enough about the world to know that not only is this fella used to bad business, he excels in it. Bill says nothing, 
but keeps a weather eye open below the brim of his sou'wester. His wife leads the stranger through the cobwebbed clutter and into the back room and closes the door behind them, tightening the rope on his trousers and pulling down his hat against probable squalls. Bill loiters near the door. He hears words, package, Holgate, delivery, then footsteps heading toward the door. Bill scuttles back behind the counter, his old thumper yammering its complaint against the hull of his rib racks. As the stranger leaves, he tips his hat and sends Bill a look of such dedicated malice that the ancient mariner would run away to sea in a bucket if he had one sound enough to paddle. Yeah, and guess what? The character doesn't fucking matter. No one cares. It doesn't matter. So the thing... All right, and I, I want to make sure I'm being clear here because if you've listened to this show before, or even if you listened to our initial discussion of what we thought was good, you might be confused. You might be saying, well, Chris and Paris, you always like rich detail. Yes, but a good author knows where the rich detail belongs, where it is important. Sometimes those little details matter, and that's great. However, this really could have been cut down for content, Ghost Lover and some other things, and also just in the number of descriptions and about what, right? Sometimes it's nice to get a little extra for accessory characters that don't matter, but not every single time. There are already, there's already too large of a cast of essential characters, and then there's all these little fucking dust mites of characters <laughs> floating around Sleepy. everywhere. Now Please, you have allergies. these characters up. Right? Yeah, They're just... everywhere. When's the last time you cleaned this book up? Yeah, now I have asthma. Thanks. <laughs> it just, it was too much. Book and... moms in here. Yeah. Just like coming in here. <laughs> no, but I mean... You... You've you just know left where... this character on the ground for like you <laughs> described his whole thing. You just need to know where the details are necessary and helpful. Again, it's okay to include some and actually even good if you include some that are a little unnecessary. But this is nearly 400 pages and it did not need to be is the point. But Bill's Southwester hat you can find in the depths <laughs> of London's dungeons. And if you pick that up, it tells you that all hats in London actually give you a bonus to a certain attribute depending on its style and what era it came from. Also, <laughs> well, you know what? If you if you find Ruby the Boxer's boots, you can actually fuck Brady Divine. <laughs> just a, a, the tip of a corporeal penis. Yep. Just yep, just gives you just enough. You get a pe- you are blessed with a plus two to penis for three hours, and makes your organ corporeal. All right, sorry. I you know what? I promised I wasn't going to talk about Ghost Lover anymore, and I broke that promise. I apologize, everyone. Anyhow, hope you understand what we're saying. I just don't think in this work that the excessive detail served it at all. She's already the author's already great at giving rich descriptions. You don't need to give me a rich description of every fucking spoon and doily and cap and person's lump on their head. Like I just, there were only some characters who the description really mattered for. Like uh, Edgar Kemp, we needed to know that he had like a lumpy head because that's how you can distinguish, like, or excuse me, that's how you knew that baby Edgar was actually adult Kemp because they shared some some characteristics. That was great. That made sense, but. I didn't need to know what the Marrow's mom, Ellen Kelly, looked like. I didn't need to know what that fucking guy in the shop looked like. And all the other tens of guys in shops, I didn't need to know all this background lore on a priest who gives Bridie some information. And he's got, like, a menagerie of animals. And we talk about the chapel full of animals for, like, ten pages. And I just, I just yeah, it's cool. I liked it. But I, at that point in the book, I was like, we are at... Oh, 200 pages and I would like to be done now. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I had to really piece this, piecemeal this one out quite a bit. <sighs> All right. Okay. Moving on. Moving on. 
Why did anyone do anything? <laughs> well, like why did anyone there. do anything? I feel like we're going to be in this parking lot for a while if we start, if we go there next. So do we want to just hit some short ones first and then drive to the, yeah, you know what? To the we'll, motivation parking we'll lot? We'll come back to this one okay. because it's a pretty big one. Yeah. All right. Let's, keep that in mind that I'm questioning why anyone do things. Yeah. Let's. All right. Let's move through our shorter notes right. first. Next, next thing that I think is a pretty quick note is, uh, hey, female presenting characters don't need to be further characterized with sexual assault. Thanks. There was just a, a rape scene that literally added nothing and felt like more padding. And it's like, if you got to pad your work with a sexual assault, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? It's to make Bridie look messed up in the last few chapters. And also more she... tough because she fought her attacker. But we already knew she was tough. We already We were already described. At length, in depth, all of the trials and tribulations she had been through, I did not need a man to come into her home and assault her. He was initially there to rob her, but then he's an asshole, so he decides, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get me a rape in, too. And you're just like, what the fuck? Why? There was no reason for this. Again, this is another character that you end up spending too much time with and gets too much description. Also, he can just be a fucking sexual assault gremlin for 10 pages and then disappear. I thought the, we were almost out of this book without that because this happens fair, like, like really beginning late the of game. the last quarter of the cha- of, of the book, you yeah. could say. And I thought, like, okay, cool. We're not going to have any of that in here. And then Same. just the gremlin pops up again. I'm still here. I've yeah. always been here. <laughs> Yeah, turns out we don't we don't have a we don't have the right pesticide yeah. for those yet. <laughs> Working on it, so please don't do that. Please, like again, we we have talked about this before on the show. Of course, if you are like, for example, writing a work about the experience of going through that, of course it's going to have to be included. If that if that is the if that is the point, if you are writing from an important perspective around that, of course. If it is handled with grace, of course. Mercifully, we do not get detail. It is just alluded to. And honestly, we're not even sure if it was actually accomplished or if Bridie fought him off before he was able to commit said assault. But in any case, he attacks her, yada, yada. But, like, there was <clears throat> there was just no reason for it. There, if it had been cut out of this, it would have been more enjoyable. Again, if you cut this out and Ruby... This book would have been 20% more enjoyable, and I already found it, like, 60% enjoyable. So this could have brought this up to, like, an 80% for me. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Like, really could have made a huge difference here. So, anyway, don't do it. Just don't do it. Um, I thought that making her personal background so intrinsically connected to this case, to the extent that it was, was way too contrived. Because it's like... Oh, she's working on this really hard case, and it turns out it's just her old nemesis, her sort of stepbrother from when she was in with dad number two, and he's a real asshole, and he murdered her dog, and now he's also the villain in this story, and it's like, why did, why? It didn't, there was no need for that. It didn't do, it didn't add anything. It's supposed to add dramatic weight to it, because it's it like, didn't. oh, it's it's her stepbrother from back then therefore it's get you know it's more it's her old nemesis that's why she's so torn up about like having to see him and stuff like that so it it adds that but that's also just an unnecessary part of the story i think there's a way to bring that in earlier so you know the story like i think you could have maybe sold that to me better if you brought the mention of gideon or like this being part of some of her past early on like she gets called to the baronet's 
uh, estate and it's like the old estate that she used to live in or you even condense the baronet down to like the son of the doctor right so it's like she doesn't want to be called back here but it's got a good pay or something like something like that to at least make it sort of relevant to like it just seemed there were so many parts to this and almost all of them go back to her childhood which just felt too contrived it felt too fucking contrived what are the chances that in the bustling metropolitan city of london <laughs> like the height of its prominence in the world what is what are the chances that you are going to be hired by someone who is being defrauded by people you lived with as a child in succession. Like, not just one person, but, like, two of yes, them involved. Yes, like, you were like, passed around to, to multiple households and, like, in all of these somehow they're wrapped up in this. Yeah, game. it's just a little, it's a little too much. I, I don't, I don't think that the weight that it added was worth the twists and turns. It, I'll agree there. Yeah, that's, agree that's there. what I'm trying to get at. So... It was, I don't know, and Gideon is just, like, too easy of a villain. He's a doctor, but he's he's really into basically cutting people up to see what's going on inside there, so he's not the kind of doctor that's in it to, like, learn. He actually just enjoys cutting people up. While they're alive and not anesthetized, I should say. Yes. Vivisection, we're talking about. Sorry. Yes. Um, and he's been this way since a child. He was just born evil and is evil. Like, there's no nuance. It's not... I. That's another reason why he was a bad villain, and I thought that including him as, like, the end boss was fucking dumb. Hated it. Absolutely hated it. Bad choice. Or on that, in terms of little things here, it's very early in the book that it's revealed that Mrs. Bibby slash Dorcas, even though you don't know she's Dorcas, I mean, you could put it together by, like, story number yeah, two you, or three. Yeah, you do eventually put it together, yeah. But her and Dr. Harbin are the ones that stole Christabel from the Baronet at mm -hmm. the start. And this is revealed like third chapter. Like immediately. Book. Like yeah, immediately. So I feel like the entire mystery that I could have been hooked in is like, you could have even had the chapters with Miss Bibby, Mrs. Bibby and Christabel. And it would just be Christabel is with this weird lady. I guess that's someone who kidnapped her. Where is this lady from? Mm -hmm. How is she related to the case? And you could have like dropped crumbs about like, oh, there's a maid that like went in there sometimes or like. But it's just right away, the doctor that was in, like, the scene right before it is in the next scene being like, shit, we stole her. What are we going to do now? Yeah, and then... And then <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to, like, lead me on a little no. bit? And then, like, Bri one of Bridie's early, like, early on in the book, one of her first memories is like, oh, yeah, there was a shitty maid called Bad Dorcas, and she had a hell of a limp. And then it's, like, cut to two chapters later. Man, that Mrs. Bibby sure has a hell of a limp with yeah. a shitty leg, and she's telling stories about a Dorcas son. It's like, okay, yeah, we Just get it. right away. Yeah. The most premature case of case salt, like, giving it to the reader that I've ever seen. Yeah. There's pills for that now, I think, that they, <laughs> they keep advertising them to me on Facebook for some reason. Are you an author that just doesn't know <laughs> when to reveal the mystery in your story? <laughs> Call now for Chris Amabib. <laughs> <laughs> some like weird ad with some guy in a bucket hat going like I talked to my doctor about Chris Mebibib you should talk to him too <laughs> like I'm supposed to go into the doctor's office and just be like I have you seen heard about what's Chris Mebibib and the doc mm -hmm. this is what they expect you to do is like I heard a weird word on TV what's that about doc and the doc will reveal to you what it's supposed tangent here on an already <laughs> for a long episode what the fuck is up with prescription medication commercials where I don't even get to know what it's for I mean, it does. They do tell you what it's for. No, no. I've seen. What? Okay. The particular one. I know this. It's Rebelsis. Rebelsis. <laughs> 
features <laughs> okay, Chris, a man Chris walking onto the YouTube. From his childhood There's a man who looks like he is fr- like in a terrible like Louisiana style like second line band or something. He's got a bucket hat and like a denim jacket on. He's got glasses and a little bit of beard. And he's like, I was down to talk with my doctor about rebelsis. And he gives you like a little wink. And then he walks off. And I have no idea what the fuck I'm supposed to ask my doctor about Wait, besides really? rebels. Yes, there was no voiceover being like rebels. This is no, people with no. It's this fucking <laughs> jazz douche out here going. I, I was down to talk with my doctor about rebels. See you later. And I'm like, <laughs> what is? <laughs> what a perfect encapsulation of like the medical industrial complex in America. They expect me to walk into my doctor's office and have like the list of things I've seen commercials for lately. Like, okay, what about rebels? What about semeglutide? What about? <laughs> Which is, by the way, a rebelsis injection, turns out. Which is a separate ad that I saw for. And I saw that it was also a rebelsis, but it was an injection. (laughs) Why are you being targeted for rebelsis? I don't know what it is. (laughs) Holy shit. Oh, man. Okay. Back to the book. Uh, If you know what rebelsis is, please give Terrible Book Club a call uh, or email or Twitter message. Don't call us. That unnecessary shit is like, again, what a lot of this book felt like to me. All right. Back to all other small stuff. I'm sorry. I I had to get that out of me. It's been sitting with me for months. Chris's end boss. Rebelsis. Um. Okay, sorry. Back to our regularly scheduled uh, complaints here. We were talking about things that we were talking about the fact that the kind of overall relationship structure of this book felt kind of contrived. It was like a little too much like, oh, we're going to make everything reconnect back to Bridie Child. And it's like, yeah, I don't really need to do that. Would have been an effective story. I actually think it would have been more effective without that. Um, and another of those things, there, there were a few, but one of the ones that stuck out to me as like, oh, I was like mad was in the middle of the book, maybe the back middle, the back middle, the hind middle of the book. Um, Bridie is doing some investigating and interviewing, and she interviews this woman uh, who runs like a lodging. And she's like, "Hey, do you have? The, you know, she's trying to figure out where Dorcas is holding up with with the with Christabel uh, Chevelle." And she's interter- in, interrogating this woman. And the woman's being kind of shitty. She's really putting the you know putting the irons to her. And finally, she gives up a little bit and is like, "Fine, you can go look at the room where she's staying." She doesn't really admit it, but like kind of. So Bridie goes up to the room and she's looking around. She's like, oh, some like half-eaten shitty food. And there's this. And like, there just happens to be a key just out. And she's like, eh, I'll take it. I'm like, okay, fine. That key (laughs) ends up being a key to the garden door at the Eames' estate. And it is relevant because it is how... Bridie, at the very end of the book, is able to escape with Myrtle and Chevelle, Christabel. And because she has that key and it's in her pocket, she thinks to try it. And that's how she gets away and how she's able to make enough headway to get to the river and escape. And I just almost lost my fucking mind. I just almost lost my fucking mind because why? Why would... That's some Sierra adventure game logic, like old PC game. Like, like, yeah, like the key that was in the one room. Like, if you didn't pick it up 30 minutes ago, you're never going to complete the game because you didn't do the thing. Right. So, presumably, if she hadn't pocketed that key and then also remembered to try that key 
in a moment of life, in a life or death situation, she would not have been able to escape. She probably would have been, like, captured or overtaken or whatever. <sighs> I don't love it. I don't love it. I don't love the mist key. That's what I'm going to call it. Another thing that really bugged me were the, God, almost obligatory, like, villain confessions at the end. We get two of those and unclear as to why. Just villain confessions. Dorcas is just in, Mrs. Baby slash Dorcas is just in a chair at the end where, you know, Bridie confronts her and she's like, why'd you do it? And she's like, well, I'm going to die soon anyway because I'm a bad leg. Here's why I did it. And Bridie's like, I gotta amputate your leg and you'd live. And she was like, nah. <laughs> but then it's unclear. But then, like, she disappears. So presumably she did not just keel over and die. So it wasn't a deathbed confession. So what the fuck? And she's just like, yeah, here's the whole explanation. Just in case you weren't paying attention. Here you go. That's why I did it. And I mean, a little convenient for me did. as someone that was kind of confused about some things towards yeah. the end. It did clear up some things, but that's just a very boneheaded way to do it in yeah. a book. It's a, it's a crappy vehicle that we've had to drive many times. I hate it. Doesn't work. Um, and then we also get a second complimentary villain confession from Sir Berwick. Or no. Um, yes. Yes. Sir Berwick. Who, okay, I don't remember, I don't actually remember why he got arrested. I'm, like, blanking on that right now. I think they were suspicious that he was the one that stole the kid anyway. Like, he was, like, oh, it was Dr. Harbin's beheading, I think. Right. Sorry. Excuse me. So, Dr. Harbin, who, again, was uh, Berwick's doctor, who was actually the one, like, Harbin who conspired and like hired Dorcas and they stole the kid or whatever. Um, Harbin gets double crossed at the end by Gideon Eames, who, you know, is evil for evil's sake, so he decides to decapitate Harden because I think he he just felt like Harden was a a loose end who was too wily and was worried that he was gonna like say something, so he just kills him. He sends the head to Bridie in a box. We've all seen seven kind of loses yeah. <laughs> kind of loses whatever the back man, down to that. head to box. Ugh, yeah. Old news. Uh yeah, it was it was that was stupid. I didn't like that was also fucking dumb. I yeah, why did whatever. he what was the point of killing Dr. Harbin? Oh, well, I, I meant I meant sending the head to Bridie was dumb. Killing Dr. Harbin was, again, just because he was like a loose end and he was kind of, remember he was being kind of like fiddly. He was like, I don't know. And okay, they were yeah, like, all right, sure. fine. But why send it to Bridie except just to be weird and gross for being weird and gross sake, which doesn't really add much. Also because she is experienced with corpses and is a medical professional. So so... Yeah, it wouldn't like gross her out that much. Nope, it wouldn't. Sure didn't. Um, in any case. <clears throat> Berwick's in jail. Berwick's in jail. Sorry, I don't. I don't quite remember. The, I think he. I think he might be in jail because I think he beheaded Harbin. I don't remember. Point being, he's in jail. He's so he. You know, he's a baronet. He's like a minor noble, and oftentimes the minor nobles are the worst because they think they're so above everyone. And he's so freaked out by being in jail that he's he's like almost catatonic. He's pissing and shitting himself, which is kind of kind of bizarre, honestly, because he's also alone in his own cell. It's not like he's like with the general population. So I it didn't really make sense that he would be literally pissing and shitting himself in sure. fear and catatonic, but here we are. Anyway, there's like these two comic relief guards. Ugh, they get yeah. like a little back and they get a little Ab and Costello yeah, like, for no at reason. each other for yeah. a little bit. And then later on, because Bridie went to visit 
the the baronet. Yeah, she in, tried to talk to him, and he was too fucked up and couldn't talk. Then, like a page after Bridie leaves, they're like, "Well, you got the hammer, haven't you? Okay, we'll be taking them teeth right then." Go, and they like knock his gold teeth out and lay Lila out of jail. Yeah, they take he. It seems like he allows them to take. He bargains with them. They take. They rip out five of his gold teeth, and he gives them a pocket watch. And they're like, "All right, I guess you can go." Which pretty weird. I mean, to be fair, I didn't like. I didn't do any research around this, but it did seem a pretty odd point. And you would think, like, okay, he really wants to get out of jail. Great, he does. But then he just goes to Bridie and just confesses. And I don't know if that would be my first inclination if I escaped jail. I don't know if I would go. To be, like his confession too was like, yes, I've kept Christabel and like I stole her from her family. Stole her from her family, which was, I guess, was kind of obvious. By the way, I don't think I even mentioned the part. You know, we will get. You know what? We'll get to that in the motivation. Yeah, bit. yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's like, oh, yeah, I stole her from her family. This is all my fault. This was dumb. And you know, Bridie's like, yeah, I already figured this out. Like, <laughs> you didn't have to okay. lose your teeth, dude. Like, I yeah, I. So I don't, I don't understand why that was that whole part was even included. It didn't feel useful. I don't think he, he just runs in during the climactic moment. And is like I must tell you right now. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember if he said anything that she actually hadn't figured out. I don't quite remember. I don't think so. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't remember it being anything that was like. Maybe he just confirmed some of her suspicions, but that didn't feel very necessary at that point in the book. No. We're like almost the apex of the story. So I don't know. It was strange. Agreed. Yeah. Um before before we get to why anyone do things. <laughs> yeah. All right. So at the very, very end, when they have their final end boss, the end boss fight, um, you know, in Vivisector Gideon Eames, Dark Souls. Pretty good one, actually. Yeah. I mean, I do. I do. Or my do. Mickey Mouse choir, or whatever I was doing over here. <laughs> <laughs> Please get all that together. Holy shit. Okay. When. Bridie goes to back to the Eames' estate because, of course, Gideon is posted up there now that his dad's gone uh, to confront, you know, Gideon, the final boss, and get the children back because, you know, he's also kidnapped Myrtle Harbin. Just for bonus kidnap. Just for the extra bonus. Because evil guy does evil stuff, like kidnap children again for a second time because evil guy. So he kidnaps Myrtle, um... And, uh, you know, she, obviously he's also got Chevelle, Christabel at this point. She rolls in and she walks into the laboratory where she used to work with John Eames when she was uh, his ward, <clears throat> like learning about surgical stuff. And it's been totally transformed. It's been gutted and rebuilt. And it has got a bunch of, like, vivisection stuff and... Surgical stuff. It's basically like he made it an evil laboratory. <laughs> and Gideon is standing there, and in the middle there is an enormous, I believe, octagonal tank. Was it octagonal? It doesn't matter. It's not. Huge tank. And it's clear that this is where he's keeping Cristobal. And um he's standing at the top of like the ladder to enter the tank, and he has Myrtle, and he's about to like push Myrtle in. And 
Bridie has her pistol and she... Did she shoot Kemp or Gideon? She tries to shoot one of them, misses and hits the tank. Yes. Unless she was intending to hit the tank. I don't quite remember. I think it was intended to hit the tank so that he couldn't do any, like, regardless if she got out alive or dead. Right. So she shoots the tank because it's a huge tank. And obviously if like a bunch of glass and water get everywhere, then she can escape. And my question is like, all right, if you are a super rich, evil, mad scientist doctor and you're like, I am building an enclosure for my monster. Why would it not be able to withstand a little pistol bullet? (laughs) Never thought anyone would get in there with a gun. I I guess, but like... Oh, if you want to get close to it and stare at it, like, dramatically, you know, like, put your hand up to the glass, you do the evil person with the captured sea creature thing... Like, put your face up against and it. And I know this was slightly too early for Bulletproof Glass. That didn't come for, like, several more decades. But I was just a little taken by the whole, like, no contingency plan if there's a crack in the glass. Kind of weird. But I guess, you know what? Maybe I take this back. Because I think he was planning on cutting Christabel up alive. So I guess this big elaborate tank was... A short-term investment? Okay. <laughs> I guess that makes it even dumber, actually. I, yeah, I don't know. Real weird. I just want you to temporarily put a tank in here, and then you're going to take it out later. Also, if you don't, I'll vivisect you. So. Yeah, I guess. So he his plan was he was going to invite a bunch of people into the laboratory, and it had a bunch of chairs and stuff, so he was going to be like, look at her, and he was going to drag her out and cut her up for them. I get, so you know what? Here uh, we go, Paris. Why anyone do anything? Yeah, why? Why? Okay, let's just start with why decapitate Harbin? Well, I think I already explained and that. And send it to Bridie is really what I was going to, to Yeah, add I mean, because I guess you're supposed to think like, oh, he's still that little asshole boy inside because he's just evil and evil people do things like that. And it's like, yeah, but what a lame fucking character. There's no nuance. It's just obvious. You just hate Gideon. He murdered a dog. They make you think that he actually killed his sister, but it turns out it was Dorcas anyway. But uh, yeah, I just, they also make you think that he beat up his uh, dad's uh, girlfriend to the point of totally changing her personality. But again, it was actually Dorcas and she sort of framed him for it. I mean, but he is actually, he did, again, he did cut a dog up alive and then send it to Bridie. But I guess, so I guess he was like a callback. It was like, oh, here's Dr. Harvey's head. Yeah, I don't. Still cutting over here. But again, Completely unnecessary. Did not add anything to the story. Didn't add okay. a damn thing. How about why Dorcas is... I know Dorcas wants to just get a payday. Well, she also wants revenge for her friend, but I don't okay. quite understand the mechanism So Okay, so she takes Christabel... First, she's looking for a buyer at all, right? I, you know what? I gotta say, I'm trying to remember the exact timeline here. Because at first, her and Dr. Harbin are all nervous about who's going to buy her. You're right. But I don't know if that was Dorcas intentionally being dissembling and tricking Harbin because she already had a buyer. Yes. Okay. At a certain point, though, she decides she wants to sell it, it, sell Christabel to Lufkin the circus man before oh, right. she sells it to, sells her to Gideon. 
I don't remember. Why? So if there's this like whole revenge plot with Gideon to like, I don't know, frame him in this way or like, because Gideon kills Della Webb, Dorcas's ex, I suppose. And she wants to, she, this is after the Eliza. It, when did the Eliza thing happen in relation oh, to Della Webb? Eliza getting beat up was earlier because Edgar Campton, Edgar slash Camp was still a baby or toddler, I suppose. <clears throat> and oh no, maybe. What I mean? Maybe you're right. This is what I mean. Maybe that happens. It's, so it's before. it's very confusing as to what oh, is. Oh, you're right. You're right. Yeah, this much hap must happen before. Okay, so what I recall from the text is that Dorcas and Gideon initially had an alliance because Dorcas wanted to steal some jewelry from uh, Mrs. Eames and uh, Gideon hated his sister. So Dorcas was like, all right, I'm going to kill your sister if you give me those gems. They make the deal. She pushes the kid out the window. And then Gideon relinquishes his side of the deal. Doesn't give her the gems. Then I, I'm pretty sure Dorcas like beats his ass. Yeah. He, he's also a kid at this point. Yes. He's evil, but he's also a kid. Yes. She's a full grown adult. So I think she like beats his ass and they like come to some kind of agreement. Um, and then uh, I can't remember. I think the uh, uh, oh my God, what was her name? Was a Doctor Eames having an affair with what's her name? The, the lady that was found dead. Oh no! Um, okay. I don't. Yeah, I don't remember this. Oh my we, God, nameless we were, we were character. Just saying, we were just saying her name, and I forgot. Eliza, Eliza. 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 John Eames, Doctor John Eames, the senior, is having an affair with Eliza, the housemaid. That affair produces Edgar Kemp, Edgar Kempton, who is Edgar slash Kemp. Um, and she's sticking around for a while. It seems like she got pregnant again, and Gideon and her have a secret conversation in the barn that Bridie comes comes upon accidentally. And he's like, "But I can help you get rid of it." And she's like, "No, I really like don't. I don't fuck trust you, man. Like, no thanks." And she leaves, and Gideon is like pissed. And I, I don't know, or maybe Gideon was also having an affair with her. It's kind of confusing. That point to me was confusing. It's very clear that he's offering her an abortion, but then I'm also not sure if like they were an item. I don't think so. I think it was no. his dad. Yes. And so the impression that I got. Yeah. And so he is mad and a huge baby because he gets because she doesn't want him to help her. Uh huh. And so then Dorcas beats the shit out of her to the point that it like changes her personality. She like can barely function, and Dorcas pins that on Gideon. Because she knows that Bridie, child Bridie, is like convinced that Gideon did it and is looking for evidence. So Dorcas plants evidence and she knows Bridie is going to bring it to the dad and like get him kicked out. So she does. That all happens. Gideon gets sent away. You know, Dorcas is stoked because her plan worked because Gideon gets sent away and Gideon thinks Bridie's the reason and she kind of is, but like she was going off of ev faked yes. planted evidence. She doesn't yes. know that. Because Dorcas was really good. About this all has of been this. going for like five minutes here. This is the answer to the question: <laughs> so to sorry. why did Dorcas do any of this? Okay, <laughs> and then 
<laughs> As a consequence of this, I want you all to know that I am doing this from my fresh brain, and I am not. I have not been looking at notes. This, for yes, this, this is, is magnificent, hard. honestly. I'm, I'm but I'm still, I still think at the end. Let, let me cut you no, off. No, 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 no. Okay, don't cut me off fine. yet because I'm going to lose it. Okay. Fine. And then <laughs> there, so so getting it sent away, but also Bridie gets sent away. Be- I don't know. This is just what rich people in the UK do. Something happens. Go away, to a kid. child. Just, just go. Leave. <laughs> So he decides, well, he can't keep anyone. All the children must go. And so he tells Bridie, like, look, look, dude, I'm going to give you a little, uh, not a trust fund. Annuity. Like a, annuity, yes. I'm going to give you a little nest egg so you, you can live a respectable life. You never have to work. And I'm going to recommend you. I'm going to give you a letter of recommendation to this guy who's like a toxicologist chemist which is Prudo and then so she goes to Prudo Prudo teaches her about you know like toxicology and chemicals and drugs so that's like a perfect complement to her surgical experience and then her previous you know dead people experience so like she's she's got all the tools and so she gets sent away but like kind of works out because she gets enough money to live on for the rest of her life why does is relevant to why Dorcas did any of this (laughs) pausing uh, we skipped the part where Gideon recruited Bridie to help him operate on Della. Yes. <sighs> Fuck, I thought I had all this. No, the, see, the you went off okay, on a fucking, like, because like, that's what the book does. No, that's what this I book know. is like. I think this is actually perfect because you, you're trying to connect the dots, right? And Which I tr- usually like, but this yeah. was, the dots were sometimes in, stars. In another universe. <laughs> Sometimes There's not even a ballpark here. Yeah. It's just completely that the games are different in a way. So this is exactly what I'm talking about is me asking you a simple question of why did Dorcas do this? Okay, right. And I was trying to get I was trying to explain her interwoven relationship with Bridie and Gideon. I did forget that before Gideon gets, you know, mixed for all the Eliza stuff. Um, Gideon just one day is like forces Bridie to help him and she's like I don't want to fucking help you and he's like well you either do it or I get you in a lot of trouble and get you sent away and she's like fine so he's like hey this lady who lives kind of near here in a cottage she has this like horrible giant tumor that like you know it almost looks like she's pregnant that's how bad it is and she's in excruciating pain she's probably gonna die and Bridie's like well we could just take her to the hospital because Bridie even though she's young she's done a lot of study on this stuff and she's like and he's like no I'm going to do it. I'm better than the hospital. And so he operates on her, kills her, obviously. And then Bridie is sworn to secrecy and has to hold this horrible secret that she assisted in this woman's death and that Gideon intentionally operated on this woman just to murder her and look at her insides. Really fucked up shit, right, to deal with. And turns out that's Della Webb, Dorcas's girlfriend, pretty sure romantic girlfriend kind of unclear but it does call her her like love so i'm pretty sure that's what it is so dorcas at some point finds out about this which is why i think she goes through the whole framing thing gets him sent away gideon is assumed dead a couple years later because he was supposedly on a ship that like foundered in australia and someone claimed they saw his dead body and so it was like for many years like he's dead turns out he's not dead comes back and he studies to be a surgeon like his dad and i guess at some point everyone finds out about it you know bridey finds out about it in the text we must assume dorcas found out before that 
and then I'm foggy on what's going on. So, again, Paris, I, I'm going to cut you off here okay. because I simply asked you, why did Dorcas <laughs> do this? Yeah, instead of answering, I just I just retold so you. So that is my point. That is my entire point with this. It's such a convoluted, interwoven thing. And at the end, I'm still like, but why? Yeah, because I was like, oh, it was to get back at Gideon. But then I was like, but what is it? But is it? But how? Because- and she already did before. So why is it just like a con thing where she wants to make money and in the end she's like fuck it I don't care and but like it's also interwoven with her past previous personal life because Gideon's showing up and he also wants a bit of that marrow money or whatever like he, I don't understand why anyone did anything here yeah. why did Doctor like Doctor Harbin who is like employed at, at like an estate yeah he's is, like a real doctor he's like a legitimate why does doctor. he need the extra cash like he's not I even in know. debt he just like he's just like I guess we'll sell this marrow and it's weird because you would think that a doctor's uh motivation here would be to be credited with a discovery but if he doesn't but if he has to He's just like, we got to fucking sell it. sell it to the circus. I don't care. So what, like, this yeah. is like a medical thing that you could like make your name on or something. And you're just yep. like, I, I'm so nervous. We got to mm-hmm. sell it. So and why? How, and how could it be enough money to make all of this worth it? So why? Why know. any of this? I don't know. Which is why I was like, did we miss something? But when you were also confused about this, and then I thought I had it together, and then I reread parts, and I was like, wait, that's not it. And you just it. went into a fugue <laughs> state in front of me, trying to describe the details of how, why Dorcas did any of this, and you went landed nowhere near yeah. the motivation. My only guess is that she was hoping... That she was going to die before she could be, because her leg is clearly gangrenous and like actually going to kill her at you know relatively soon. I think she was hoping she would die. Therefore, it doesn't matter if she was implicated, but Gideon would ultimately be blamed for everything because he's the one who ended up with the child. That's the only. That's the okay. only little scrap. That I guess I got. I'll take it. An extremely long, convoluted plot to get yeah. back at Gideon when Dorcas is perfectly willing to just murder fools. So what's the problem with just murdering Gideon? Yeah, she's always killing people. So what's the problem? She also killed the child's actual mother. What's the problem? For, like no real reason. Just shoot him. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, it <laughs> seems like you're the type of person. Yeah. That would just shoot him. Yeah. And I mean, if starring you're gonna... David Spade. <laughs> If you're just going to die anyway and you don't care, yeah, just walk up to the motherfucker and pop him. Like, be done with it. Okay, cool. That's what I wanted out of this point. If it, that, we, we, there's many other things but like you're this right. in the, the story. The fact that it took us 20 minutes to get there is too much. Okay. And then the motivations for No, why? we're stopping this here, Paris. <laughs> no, but you're right. Harbin's motivation, baffling. Um, Berwick... Wanting to keep the child. I mean, he was like okay, really yeah. into ocean stuff, but like he. So this is the thing that I, I, I mentioned before. He brings in Bridie to do the investigation, find out who stole my daughter. No, I'm not telling you anything about my daughter. No, you may not go into any of the rooms that she once resided in. Mm-hmm. How, what is your plan to have Bridie solve anything for you if she's just like find my daughter? Can you tell me anything about her? No. Fucking find her. Yeah, I think my explanation for this is that, again, you have, you know, the sniveling lower nobility who are more concerned about appearances. Why do you even fucking call Bridie? I don't know. 
That's my point. (laughs) Moving on. Can we fix it? I was, okay, so I was thinking, I mean, and Bridie also thinks this herself in the text, that perhaps she was called as, because it was supposed to be a fool's errand, because her previous case, she actually hadn't found a missing child in time and he was murdered. And so she thinks that, well, because her last case went bad and her child died, maybe they think she's just shitty and she's not going to find the kid and they're going to get away with it. And, like, she's only hired because even though Burke wants to get her back, he kind of just wants this air of, like, oh, I'm trying to find my child. And, like, someone's looking into it. Meanwhile, he really... But there's no air because no one knows about the... There's no yeah, reputation. You're right. You're right. I don't fucking know. I don't know. I'm not sure. Okay. I'm not sure. Paris, can we fix it? Yes. I think yes. Uh, Also, yes. Yeah. You cut Ruby. Less Ruby. No Ruby. No Ruby. Don't you fucking dare. (laughs) I don't want to smidge. I don't want want anyone named Ruby or Ronan. out of this book. I don't want any boxing boots. I don't want any tattoos. (laughs) I don't want... I don't want boxing mentioned. I... (laughs) Just all of it's gone. No ghost lover. No bo- no ghost boxer. No ghost lover. Less revealing the kidnapper early and like Dr. Harbin moving from like he's just in a scene once and then immediately you reveal him as implicated in the plot. Less of that. Give me yeah. a little bit more obscurity on that one. Uh, just generally a less convoluted plot. Let's yeah. just like merge some of the dads together. <laughs> Get like yeah, Gideon yeah. and like a Dr. Harbin, maybe you could even merge together in a way. I don't know why Edgar Kemp has to be his like henchman. Sure. Uh, I yeah, I think to make the plot less convoluted, you don't have to loop everything back to her childhood. You it's don't. really bizarre. You, you don't, don't need to do that. It's unnecessary. It's weird. So in conclusion, less. Less. <laughs> in general. Also, oh sorry, we we yeah, less on that point. Just you know, just like um, just scroll back a little bit on those descriptions. Like we just just carve back just just a little bit. We don't need to know the detail of every shopkeeper and street urchin and sweeper and hat maker, and we don't need to know the details of every smell you encounter around every corner. There is some great scene setting and great description here, but it it just it just runs away. It runs away with the story a few times. You just go ran it in, ran it in, man. Just a little bit less, cut a little bit out. Do that, and I would have recommended this wholeheartedly. Honestly, if you want Lady Sherlock, 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 Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Holmes, forensic private investigator. (laughs) It would have been. I would have recommended this if you really just like that kind of thing. Sure, read it. Great. All right. Yeah, it did. It did a lot well. I think I was real. I was real like. 60 40 on this and then i don't know maybe now i'm i'm 40 60 i'm yeah. not really sure yeah <laughs> like, it's a, yeah it's too convoluted plot the boxer lover ghost not it's terrible not <laughs> um, oh no assault either also get, that, yeah. get rid of less. Sexual assault. once again that. less just less <laughs> less of things fewer things fewer things in fewer jars yeah thank so you I, let me close it with this this title for this book is actually perfect because I do really feel like I'm just paraded through a menagerie of random fun things that kind of like <laughs> kind of on their kinda own are a little. You got Cora Butters, the tall housemaid. You got a, a marrow. You've got like Victorian London lady investigator. You've got the, the like 
very evil stepbrother. Yeah, like all these little <laughs> tiny bits that are interesting of their own, but it just feels like an unrelated exhibition of things in jars. Wow. And go jump off the bridge. <laughs> No, get over to Britain. I'm going to burn you all together. <laughs> okay, good. Anyway, uh, thank you, Donnie, for recommending yeah, this one to you. us. This was actually a good one. This is a great recommendation. The length of this episode. There was a lot to talk about. There were a lot of things we liked about it, but we were still torn and had interesting reasons, I think, to dissect this yes. with some anesthesia. Um, but yeah, thank I think you. your book club made the right decision, though. Yeah, because like, everyone was like, "There's like a spell cast on this story where it's just like there's a fogginess to everything. <laughs> you yeah. can't quite get your. It's like one of those spells that makes people like realize they have something else to do instead of like finding your magical wizard tower. There's like the protection spell on it that right. makes people like, "Oh shit, I left the oven on." <laughs> <laughs> like or Don't whatever. Don't forget about the oven. That's, that's, that's or right. Or you'll burn the whole house down. That's a completely different melody <laughs> than the one that I used. But okay. I'm sorry. Anyway, let's thank the patrons. Thank you, Greg, Veronica, Will, D, Jared, Arant, Senior, Jakub, Lycoris, Elliot, Kieran, Martin, Luchek, Miri, Yanka, David, Anya, Patricia, Austin, Donnie, especially Donnie. Crimson Paladin, Beast with the Least, Scott H., Robin, Laxdotes of the Void, The Taco-Eating Unicorn, Last Man on Earth 01, Funny Robot with Antennas, Hobbyboy93, Harry, Renee, Emmy, Joyuse, The Ugly One, Bleach, Black Hat, and Julius the Nice Dragon, and our Kofi donor Kiwi thing. That's Hooray. all of them. That's all of them. There's a nice dragon there now, too. Yeah, I know. It's pretty fun to have a nice dragon. I hope okay. he has a nice recommendation for us. Well... Harris, I'm off to figure out what my motivations for even doing any of this are, but it's a long, convoluted explanation <laughs> that we'll drop later on in an episode. It'll be 30 minutes long. Uh, Yeah. All right. Well, thank you all, and thank you, Chris, and we will see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Terrible Book Club. Terrible Book Club is an independent podcast produced by your hosts, Paris and Chris. Sound design and audio editing by Chris, with sound effects and music by Epidemic Sound and sometimes also Chris. Our theme song is Kiss by Yearn, which is, you guessed it, actually, also Chris. You can find more of his soothing synthy sounds on Bandcamp at yearn.bandcamp.com. Do you want us to review a book of your choice on the show? Do you want access to some extra audiovisual weirdness? If so, become a patron at patreon.com slash terriblebookclub. If you'd like to send us a one-time tip instead, you can do that at ko-fi.com slash terriblebookclub. You can also support TBC for free by sharing the show on social media, following our accounts on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or Goodreads, telling your friends about your favorite episode, or by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or anywhere else on the internet. To send us book recommendations or your adorable pet photos, send an email to terriblebookclub at gmail.com. <laughs>